And welcome to another edition of Let Me Tell You Something as we continue our five-star Meltzer-a-thon. And we're going to get a little self-contained Samoa Joe-a-thon. As myself, Lorcan Mullen, and my co-host... Simon Cross. Have been, it took him a while to figure out what his name was there. But we were going through every match that Dave Meltzer has been rating five stars or higher. And we're in the very um, barren lands of the noughties decade. As a... Grand total of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven matches of that entire decade were given five stars. One debatable. Um, and what we are, um, and of those seven, three involved Samoa Joe. Those three were concurrent to one another over a one-year period, starting with the first one. In October of 2004. Simon, what match are we talking about right now? Uh, we're talking about, obviously, Samoa Joe going one-on-one, defending the Ring of Honor title against CM Punk. So, obviously, this is a CM Punk's first appearance in the Dave Meltzer five-star list. Um, a very different CM Punk to the one very different. a lot of people know him as. He's did love the um? I love his. Sorry, God. I was gonna say I loved his like sort of uh, free like long shorts. Basketball. It's yellow. Basically. Yeah, it's basketball shorts. Mm. So this is indie punk. This is very indie punk. Um, this is blonde punk. Blonde punk as well. I forget that he never he never was blonde in WWE, was he? When he mm. when he when he signed, he was in um. He had black hair. Yeah. And. Um, he did black hair, black long hair. With he, purple uh, highlights, weren't there? Yeah. Then it was just black hair for Straight Edge Society. Then it was bold. And I think then it was short yeah, hair. He, he never really went long after that. But during his entire indie run, he had long hair. Um, yeah. He's not a very... He's not mainstream looking. You know, he, no. About four months down the line, he goes to Trunks. He starts... I'm not saying he's not working out at this point, but he definitely becomes a lot more of a um, body guy. Yeah. He gets as big as he ever really got a while later in WWE when he went to Ohio Valley Wrestling. Um, you kind of have to, really, yeah. in those situations. But at this point, he's not really got much in the way of muscle definition or muscles. Um, mm. He's lean, but he's not trim. You know what I mean? There's no definition. Nor, nor was Punk ever really one with a physique that you know, he wasn't born with the John Morrison uh, genetics. Genetics, nor obviously because of his Samoan heritage was Samoa Joe. But in spite of this, these two men that don't necessarily look like your first image of an athlete. Mm. Joe does look quite trim as well here. It must be said in, in, in Joe. Joe terms, he does. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, at this point, Joe is twenty-five and Punk is twenty-six. Ah, well, there you go. So they're very much in their youth still, uh, not not suffering many years of being banged up and the like. But they do something that not many people were doing at this point in time. They went long. This is 
our second 60-minute match, I believe. I That rings a bell. No, 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 I... third. It's our third. Because there was also the um, Joshi match, the Manami Toyota Kyoko. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I'm yes. sure you tried to... Wi- I know you tried to wipe those out of your memory as much as you possibly can, Simon, but... It's... It's Adjo Kong will get the fuck out for me as far as Joshi <laughs> wrestling is concerned. This is where I am. <laughs> so, but this was... CM Punk's an interesting one for me. We've got another episode where we'll really go deep into Punk. And not to uh, telegraph, but I think most most of our listeners will know what that is without checking the yeah. list. Um, CM Punk, I think, is a man... Very confident in his own abilities. Always has been. Always will be. And most of the time he backs it up with what he can do. Unless what he thinks he can do compared to what he does in a, in an octagon. Ha, <laughs> yeah. CM Punk... Um, there's a very interesting... CM Punk at this point was training Ring of Honor graduates... Uh, Ring of Honor, like Ring of Honor, had a wrestling school, and CM Punk was the first trainer. But I remember watching around this time. I think it would have been a month or so later. Jushin Liger turns up in Ring of Honor, and one of the things they'd always do with their big stars when they come in uh, is get them to do little training seminars with other wrestlers. And you yeah. see Liger doing roles, just really fundamental stuff. And CM Punk is screwing up some of the fundamentals. And Liger's having to, like, teach him. And at this point, Punk is teaching other people. What my point is that I'm trying to make, really, and this is something that kind of works within the story of this match, is Punk is not a man that's physically gifted. That's why I was always skeptical of his abilities in an actual athletic competition in MMA. (laughs) And I was ultimately proven right. And I didn't want to be, but I was. What he gets is psychology. And True, yeah. what he knows is how to work and how to get a crowd involved. And he works within his limitations and does yeah. everything well enough. Roddy Piper was never a great athlete. Um, John Cena was never a great athlete. It's it's interesting the ones that you can tell that are the natural athletes and ones that aren't. Samoa yeah. Joe's a natural athlete. Punk isn't. Yeah. Well, people, without wanting to sound um, like I'm body shaming people, the larger men who work at speed are athletes. There's there's because there's no way around it. Like you're either an athlete or carrying that much weight and looking in that shape, you shouldn't be there. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I think a lot of the big men are very often great athletes. Uh, big Show mm-hmm. never really was, but Young uh, Big Show was. Sorry, Young Young Big Show because he did obviously all that college basketball stuff yeah. like, before his knees like got wrecked. Maybe, maybe very early Big Show. Was, yeah, yeah, that's that's my point. Maybe very early Big Show. Was. Like Young so, Undertaker. Like, like we, well, I've had, I've raised this point a few times, but if Young Undertaker started. If Mark Calloway started around the period we're talking about, I'd, I'd just love to see what he could have done. He would have been, he'd been like Baron Corbin. That's how he would have been treated. Yeah. Whether fairly or not. Um. So what? But but Punk was always very self-indulgent. 
And that's why I've always thought it was so funny that he hated Triple H so much. Because they were so like each other. Punk loved to go long. He was, and, he, and if he could get away with it and he could be indulged, he would. Like him and yeah. Chris Hero. Like two or three years into their career, they had like a 90 minute match in IWA Mid-South. They had a tables and ladders match that went 55 minutes. Jesus. Uh, he did loads of 60 minute Ironman matches with Colt Cabana. Uh, he did, like, this was the second of two 60-minute time limit draws he had with um, Samoa Joe. He also had one with Christopher Daniels. Um, And just like how Triple H, Triple H can't not go long and try and prove something. I think Punk always felt like he had to prove something Mm. and believed in himself as better than everyone else and that he worked harder than everyone else. Whereas um, and at certain talk- points, and at certain points in both of their careers, both Punk and Triple H were right. Yeah. Whereas uh, someone else we've talked about quite extensively in the earlier days of doing this, Ric Flair. The reason he did sixty-minute draws was because, as the, in his role of the traveling champion, he was there to make the other guy look good, and the yeah. best way would be to be taken to the limit by him. Well, they wanted so to it's do less, that. It, it, yeah, it's less. That's less of a self-indulgent thing. That's more of a keeping everyone across the country strong. But the 60-minute culture is, was so long gone in North American wrestling, really. The last remnants of it were sort of the period of Ric Flair's world title run in the in the like late 80s, and that was pushing it. Like, WWF never did, like, 60-minute time limits. They did a couple of Ironmans. Yeah. Like, Bret Hart worked Ironman matches with Ric Flair and uh, Owen Hart on the, on the house show circuits. And obviously they had the one with Shawn Michaels, but like WWF pay-per-view matches nearly never went over thirty minutes. Uh, well, you want to keep, you want to have a lot of variety on your pay-per-view, yeah. don't you? Yeah, same with WCW. WCW shows, WCW matches wouldn't really go that long. Um, it's become increasingly the case now that people like to go longer. Um, like pretty much all Okada tag title defenses, uh, thirty minute plus. And he's had a yeah. few 60 minutes in his time. And I don't doubt for a second that AEW will probably want to do a couple of uh, long matches in the near future as well. You're right, sir. I've got something in my eye, just two okay. seconds. So I will <laughs> waffle on for a bit longer. I'll tell you, I'll, okay, I'll give you a bit of a, an autobiography while Simon tries to sort out his eyes. Ring of Honor's um, got a, a special place in my heart, personally. It was the thing that I got became the biggest fan of outside of WWE, and I think for a period of time around this time, I was a bigger fan of Ring of Honor than I ever was of specifically WWF, because my WWF love very quickly was shared with like a love for WCW, because WCW Worldwide was on the telly, so that was like the most frequent wrestling I was getting to watch. So I was probably as, as avid a follower of WCW as I was WWF, although I probably spent more money on... Well, I only ever bought WWF videos at that time. Um, then, but then when I'm 18, and I was wherever at ECW and I wanted to be part of the ECW culture, never felt quite into it. I watched the videos a bit. But I'm reading Power Slam magazines at this point, and I'm starting to get into the internet scene. It's all about star ratings, and suddenly my view of what's a good wrestling match is very much defined on how many stars would you would Scott Keith give it. Or I didn't know that well about Dave Meltzer at the time, but I was aware of the, the star the star ratings culture. Another website at the time called DeathValleyDriver.com. I was very keen to know about all these things, and this knowledge of smart 
Smarkdom sort of reached its apex with the creation of Ring of Honor. And Ring of Honor was something that was catering specifically to me. And I'm 18 years old and I want to get into something and I want it to be mine and special. And this was something starting day one, I was aware of it. I could get into it. I read the results of Era of Honor Begins. And I was pretty much on the Ring of Honor website from like March of 2002. And by this point, Samoa Joe and CM Punk are the two big stars of Ring of Honor. Funnily enough, neither of them were on the first few shows of Ring of Honor. Uh, The five tapes that I had of Ring of Honor, which were the first five shows, neither Punk nor Joe were on those. Uh, CM Punk made his debut in November of 2002, I believe, and Samoa Joe made his debut in October of 2002. Uh, Joe would then win the Ring of Honor title relatively quickly in March of 2003 and have this title run that is one of the great title runs of modern wrestling. The closest thing to like an old school NWA World Heavyweight Champion facing all comers. And one of those all comers was CM Punk, who was really the first great uh, personality of Ring of Honor. He was like a Roddy Piper figure. He could have great matches, but he was not necessarily, like I said, as physically gifted as some of the other guys. He couldn't do super graceful, high-flying moves, but what he could do was draw in a crowd. His big feud with Raven, who was not the sort of worker that Ring of Honor, you would associate with what Ring of Honor is started to sort of redefine what Ring of Honor could be. And so CM Punk was like the personality that was building up the mid-card, and he was the guy that could cut the promos better than anyone else in in the promotion. He cut this one promo on um, Raven down a, when he walked down a sta- stairway with Colt Banner on one side and Daphne on the other. Uh, face covered in blood and bleach blonde hair coloured red as well. And just about how... He hated everything that Raven stood for. And again, it kind of works again. CM Punk is kind of a self-righteous prick in character, and at times it would seem in person. Yeah. Um, And a lot of Ring of Honor fans are self-righteous pricks. (laughs) Are you trying to tell us something there? (laughs) I'm 19 years old, Simon. What do you think I am at this point? 20 years old, actually, when this match happens. So, yeah. Self-righteous to, prick. <laughs> to go back to your um, point about... wasn't around back then. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, to go back to your point you were making about... Simon has Joe. removed the item in his eye. So I've got vision again. It's beautiful. Um, to go back to the point you were making about Samoa Joe being the travelling champion, I think he's like sixth... Uh, not the travelling champion, the uh, champion facing all comers. Mm. He's about 16 months into his title reign at the yeah. start of this match. Yeah. And it's just weird, um, just thinking about Samoa Joe at this time, how he was just this hot, unstoppable thing. Uh, and it's just when you juxtapose it against um, Samoa Joe's current treatment at the time of recording and, and uh, your feelings on that, it's just... Uh, this is this is how Samoa Joe should be done, I think. The way the way he's presented in this match. The whole thing about Ring of Honor was like we're not like them. Yeah. You know, we're we're doing things that you want to come back and we're doing things that you want that the wrestling show should be doing. So they're having longer matches, they're having the best quality wrestling matches that they can possibly make. And, you know, if even if they're not necessarily got the best wrestlers, especially in the first year or so, they'll say they have the best wrestlers. Yeah, and they will 
try to create um, a movement similar to what ECW was able to do. And so they said um, they were doing things that you just wanted there to be. They wanted the titles to be treated with respect. and They wanted long reigns. And that's what you had. No one held a title for over a year in, in wrestling. Especially not in North America. Well, no. You got WWE, into, uh... you know, from 98 to 2001 to 2003. To, well, yeah, from 98 to 2004, if you look at that as like the new period of wrestling from the Attitude Era onwards, I would be shocked if there weren't like 30 to 40 title changes for the WWE Championship. And they were relatively conservative compared to what WCW were doing in the last couple of years. <laughs> well, yeah, but they were mad. So <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, but you get where I'm coming from. So they're having long title reigns. They're having um, guys having to defend their title and not have outside interference. And, you know, they're following a code of honor and they're treating yeah. it as a sport and they're treating it with reverence and seriousness. It has to be taken very, very very seriously. I can see why you're into this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, I was well, taking myself very seriously. Yeah, and, and, and was... you are, you're entirely right in what you're saying in one sense that this would be something that people would be attracted to because the alternative was the last knockings of the Attitude Era. It was Vince Russo's mad, insane ride in WCW. It was the start of what we call the ruthless aggression area where it was was all about tall guys with bodies at this point tall guys with bodies there was still like we could talk about how women are represented at length in wrestling but it certainly wasn't great then I wasn't doing anyone any favors there really either so they can't really talk in that regards yeah um but i bet their women's matches were more than just like matches were non-existent so they didn't have a women's title until about a year or two ago. Oh, shit. Okay, my bad. Partly because they thought they were doing the best wrestling possible, and unfortunately at that point there weren't that many top-grade female American wrestlers, at least not ones that they were aware of or bothered to learn about. I think it's more of that, there, isn't but it? They were more brought in as personalities like Lacey and mm. the like. They did, they did support the, the Shimmer promotion, which was an attempt with a female promotion, and they just had to fight for things that they had to do as well. But um yeah. but yeah, it was just trying to be what WWE wasn't. It had sensible logical storylines that were mostly in ring based. Um they had they had a what w- wide array of wrestlers and wrestling styles, you know, there were characters like Special K that were a very interesting uh, faction mm-hmm. they had around this time. Um, and characters like the Carnage crew, which were a bit more no-nonsense brawlers, and Homicide, and Brian Danielson, Loki, you know... Nigel McGuinness. Nigel McGuinness. Like I said, they were taking themselves very seriously, and to get to this match, this is a match that takes itself very seriously. They want to show how hard they can do, and they want to make a point of how they're working headlocks and the like. Yeah, um, like I think there are headlocks in this match right up to like the thirty-minute point. Oh yeah, it's um, and the commentators do a really good job of explaining it, and obviously the crowd would have known the story as well, so the crowd are aware of what CM Punk's trying to do with the various headlocks. Mm. Um, uh, it's an obscure video game reference time, um, just to let you know, Lorcan. Uh, there's the last boxing game that I can think of was released on major platforms was Fight Night Champion, which had a story mode for 
some reason because EA are doing that now. Um, the final stage is where your guy gets redemption after being released from prison and is going to fight this like preferred fighter, this white Mike Tyson, uh, this guy called Isaac Frost. And you're given objectives throughout various stages of the boxing bout. And for the first two rounds, it, literally the objective just says survive. And you just got to avoid him for like two rounds and hope he tires himself out to a, a point where he's attackable. Mm. And because I played this game at uni and therefore because I did it with a lot of free time, it's now seared into my brain. Mm. I, I saw a lot of that in this and it's very much... So, uh, Samoa Joe is the athlete. Samoa Joe is yeah. the bigger guy. I've got to tire him so I'm on... He, he's he's yeah. attackable. Well, he's get attackable. Kind of, yeah. It's kind of summing up what I've always thought about Punk. He's not necessarily physically gifted. Mm. He has a brain. Yeah. And that's what it is in this match. He's having to use his brain to try and... He's trying to keep with Joe physically, trying to keep up with his pace and his... Mm. striking and his mat wrestling but he's also trying to outwit him outfox him tire him out frustrate him mm. and he's also and got the to... hometown advantage because he's in chicago because it's in chicago and to unplug it slightly from the in-ring action the way the commentators convey this is a very good in terms of the fact i immediately knew I hadn't watched the first match, but I immediately knew what had happened in the first match and how it applied to the second match because the commentators spoke about it not just in like a storyline sense but in a sporting sense like uh it's sort of like a weird blend between john watson and match of the day where they'd be going oh well here's here's the ta- here's the reason for these tactics whereas football or soccer commentators are just reacting to in the moment it was like a hybrid mm. and um what else i was going to say about the commentators is as a whole, and, the, and bleeding into their, we want to be taken seriously, they present the whole thing in a very sports-like manner. That was the whole I don't know if you picked up... Yeah, yeah, and they, um, it's one thing saying, oh, we're going to do this, but ex- it's the execution of that which is the key thing. And they executed it really well. I actually really enjoyed the commentary, even though it didn't have, like, the, oh, my God, and play-by-play play play sort of stuff. It... it and the colour, sorry, rather than play-by-play. Play. It really worked with the match. And I, I know this isn't a side because we focus on the in-ring action, but I, I just want to highlight that point. I thought the way this was commentated was really, really good. Well, Gabe Sapolsky was one of the commentators uh, using a, a nom de plume um, or a pseudonym or some other pretentious word that seems appropriate since we're talking about 20-year-old me being into Ring of Honor. Um <laughs> it's um one thing I I would ask though about the the, the commentators. What do you think of the volume level? I know we're not ones to talk about quality of audio. Ah, uh, well, it's very loud. It's very hard to hear the crowd. There's yeah. one moment that I could tell they were fighting to. They were fighting against some of the crowd as well because there was one guy that yelled out "boring" at one point. You could just hear it. Yeah, and another point, someone yelled out "do another headlock." So I think there was a certain amount of um, frustration from some in the audience as to how often the headlock was worked. But it was worked, and they were working with the headlock at all times. The headlock was a part of the match. Joe was trying to escape it. Punk's trying to ground him. It worked with because Joe would get out of the headlock or 
tries to get out of the headlock and Punk will find a creative way to stay in it or to go back to it yes. to try and keep Joe controlled and keep him and get him frustrated so that later on in the match Joe sort of does some subtle heel work I remember when he's pulling Joe, uh, Punk by the hair and the ref's admonishing him and he just flat out bullies the ref for a while yeah. He, he like walks him into the corner and is like staring daggers at him. And Joe is he is a baby face, but he's a baby face that has feuds with baby faces and he's a baby face that has feuds with heels. Like mm-hmm. he hates the baby face homicide as much as he hates the heel Christopher Daniels. So in that regards, he's not so much a Ric Flair champion, he's more like a Dory Funk Jr. champion or a Jack Briscoe champion or a Harley Race champion. Uh depending on the opponent is how he will be perceived by the crowd. Ah, yeah. yeah. And that moment where he does admonish the ref, um, this, again, to link back to how they present it as sport, the ana- analysis coming from the commentators of always, oh, he's, he's, he's took his foot off the pedal. Mm. It's the, very much the same way of when like a team's 3 0 up and then like two quick goals go in. Mm. And it's like, oh, took their foot off the pedal. You see, it's just, it yeah. sounds. Like they're talking yeah, about yeah. a sport. There are times when Joe overwhelms Punk. He smothers him. He overpowers him. When they go into a knuckle lock, he clearly has the power advantage. And it's not like where one's more powerful and one's able to do it on the ground. He's probably better than Punk on the ground as well. Yeah, Punk's just got to find a way to... Get, like I said, he's not as physically gifted, but he's mentally gifted. And he's physically gifted enough that he can just about keep up. Yeah. And he's also a man of utter resilience in front of a hometown crowd as well. So he is the underdog. And he plays the underdog role really well throughout. Um, and he plays up for the crowd and he gets the home crowd on his side throughout the whole thing. I mean, Like when he makes his entrance, I don't know if you saw that where he's got the entrance. He always used to have a message on his tape. He writes something on his tape and for that message yeah. he wrote home. Ah, oh, okay. I didn't see that, no. Yeah. I love in terms of his crowd work. It's when he hits uh, Joe's Olay kick on Joe. Yeah, that's a great moment of crowd work and just getting the getting the audience behind you. So one of the things I wanted to say, the, some of the key things they wanted to get across that they could work the fundamentals. You know, you'd always hear these stories of Jack Briscoe could work a headlock for ten minutes and the crowd would be okay with it, but you can't do yeah. that nowadays. That's them trying to say, well, we can find a way to work a headlock for ten minutes and the crowd will be on board. Obviously, they're having to fight against some people in the crowd. The ring yeah, the crowd is wants to show off that it is knowledgeable of these sort of things anyway. Yeah. You know? um, and so they want to, you know, like they they get they self police essentially, telling the guy to shut up. Who you know, who probably thinks that he should be like an ECW show and say boring, boring, or things like that. You know, you fucked up and all that sort of stuff. Like I said, I've always seen Ring of Honor as kind of like it's like um, after if like. If ECW was like the Sex Pistols, uh, the Ramones coming in and punk and just wiping out everything that was there before it, what came from it were like all the offshoots. And so if you look at someone like CZW, that's like the punk guys that loved it for the the noise and the chaos. Yeah. And so they would get into things like Metallica and metal music, like their new versions of heavy metal music. Whereas your Ring of Honors, they're the post-punk scene. They're the Joy Divisions and New Order and the, you know, um, uh, Talking Heads, hipster stuff, essentially. You know, the Pitchfork. Like 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 Ring of Honor's Pitchfork, CZW was Kerrang. Right. 
I'll, I'll take your word for it. That's just gone all over my head. You're saying you're not quite as a uh, hip as me, Simon. Well, you could have made that argument until exactly you said hip. How much jazz do you listen to on a yearly basis? <laughs> Pretty much none. Um, except, well, I don't know. I don't watch a lot of eighties porn, so jazz, soft jazz, is pretty much out the window for me. Mm, well, I'll have to send you a playlist. <laughs> <laughs> These DVDs are stuck together. <laughs> that not that kind of playlist. <laughs> So, like I said, this was them basically doing two things. Wanting to show that they could do, like, the old 70s NWA 60-minute stuff just as well as the old-timers could. But I also thought it was their tribute to the All Japan Kings Road style that we've seen. Like, Misawa in particular, uh, Joe in particular, has very obviously always been heavily influenced by Misawa, Kawada, Kabashi... Like, I mean, he does call well, the kicks in this match, I believe. Yeah, and obviously he CM Punk... elbows and forearms and, you know, I don't know if... selling and stories on top of stories. And I don't know if CM Punk had it at this point, but he, he, that's a man who's got Misawa's boots tattooed on him. Mm. So, obviously they have been yeah, watching... Misa- yeah, J- Punk cares for it. But like, I, when Misawa died, uh, I remember he was at like, the next WWE pay-per-view or something, like the tape prominently said Masawa on it when he was doing an interview. Mm. So that like I said this is their kind of that it's it's those fusing of influences. All Japan like NWA, Ric Flair, Harley Race, you know, Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk uh, and the indie culture, the indie wrestling movement and also the the strong style with the hard kicks and the MMA influence as well with with Samoa Joe in particular. Yeah. Although CM Punk was the one that ended up going into MMA. Um, again, let's not bother talking too much <laughs> about that. Um, but they were doing things like that. There was a the, like they they had tension with potential apron bumps. Like they worked off of the apron. And I was like, ah, right. little the, little the cheeky. The timing of the topes. Uh, it was similar to when CM Punk hit a tope. It was when he had to have a sudden burst of energy after Joe had dominated him for like. 10-15 minutes or so yeah. and Joe also returned fire with a tope of his own later on in the match but yeah it was like targeting limb work like jo- Punk goes after the arm of Joe for a long period of time as well. Really good like targeting yeah. as well I, like, I really enjoyed the way he uh, put it's, it's just some of the unique ways that, like you don't see limb targeting like that it's usually like oh we'll stomp it but yeah. Punk because obviously he didn't have the size advantage, had to be creative, and it, yeah. it came across. And strike exchanges again, like like elbow exchanges and slaps and kicks and, and all that sort of that stuff. Punk's uh, sort of like uh, I like to call it a mule kick, sort of, but it's sort of not. You know when he uh, yeah, he gets him like gets an arm, arm bar, steps yes. over the yeah steps over the arm and then just starts kicking yeah him in the face repeatedly. Um. So yeah, they 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 don't do a lot. Like, you could cram all the moves that they did, essentially, into a 30-minute match. But they space them out really well. They pace it really well. And by the end, the crowd is going apeshit for it, which is which is pretty impressive because they'd already had the 60-minute time limit. So you thought, you know, there's a chance that a crowd can end up sitting on their hands thinking, well, we know what's happening here. Yeah. But they were still pushing, like, you know, the near falls up to the end. 
And, uh, yeah, Punk would try and hit one of his moves and it wouldn't work the first time, but then he'd hit it the second time, like his Pepsi twist move. Or, uh, you know, Joe would try and get him into a submission hold and Punk would escape it and then get on. To... There weren't that many pinfalls, I, I noticed. Not, not many pin attempts at all, really, in the whole match. And not mm. a lot of really long two counts. Like, I've got in my notes, I've got, like, uh, I think Joe hits a... Bra- no, Punk or Joe hits a brain buster... Uh, it's uh, Joe. Joe, Joe hits it. Brain Buster gets a two, a long two. Punk hits a hammerlock leg sweep DDT that gets a two. Like, that's, that's a really beautiful, like, the way he executed yeah, that was quite... That sparks an ROH um, chant. Uh, Joe escapes the Pepsi twist, hits a power bomb that gets a two. Punk kicks out, that goes into an STF, or he attempts to do an STF that he then switches into a crossface. Um, Joe really played up the, the, the sense of frustration. Like, you know, this works with everyone, but Punk keeps finding a way out, you know? Yeah. No one had taken him to this limit as a champion except for Punk. Everyone else he beat, and Punk was the one that he couldn't beat, that it was going to a time limit draw. Uh, Punk hits the Pepsi twist, then successfully later on, uh, hits a moonsault. Again, not the most graceful moonsault in the world, but he gets a long two from that. Uh, Joe hits with them slaps. Uh, Punk ducks a clothesline, gets him into a sleeper. Uh, Joe backdrops out of the sleeper, and then Punk does do a pop up. Uh, so that was like my all Japan yeah. thing, and that led to a double clothesline. And then we get the whole working on the corner at the end, where Punk goes through Pepsi plunge, which he himself, as in hindsight, has said was a pretty stupid looking move. Yeah. Do you know what that was? Yeah, it's the pedigree off the top rope. Again, Triple H-esque. <laughs> you know, the, the guy you hate the most. There's probably some daddy issues in there somewhere. I don't know. Um, it, so then it becomes all about the final fight in the corner. One thing I thought was really unwise, right at the end when Joe hits the muscle buster, is that the, re- the, the re-announcer... I don't know how often he'd been t- saying the times, because again, it was hard to hear outside of the commentators mm. but the first time i really heard it was him counting down from 10 oh no 10 no seconds. i i'd heard the re i possibly the referee actually said to them and that came across very audibly at the 45 minute mark um i could actually uh, yeah it was just like 45 minutes have elapsed came through cr- okay. pretty much crystal clear also that was around the point that the commentators dropped off and they just went to the crowd reaction yeah I, mm. Didn't now I I'd heard that this had because I read I think in uh, Power Slam not at the time but a few years later that that had happened in this particular match uh, and I thought oh cool maybe it's organic and maybe it was it didn't sound organic mm. you know it no, sort it didn't of, feel uh, organic in the slightest yeah and when it when I've obviously now I've experienced it the fact that it didn't sound organic makes it very contrived. I've got no problem with that. I understand why they decided... They're, they're always doing the commentary post-production. So, probably, Sapolsky thought, let's do something different and not do commentary for the end. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I don't blame them for taking a swing in, in that sense, but... I don't know, it just felt a bit wanky. Well, wait till we get to the other Ring of Honor match coming up uh, in the joe Oh, boy. So, yeah, Joe hits his muscle buster off the second rope, but the time limit expires. 
and some very selfish fans demand five more minutes. I'd be like, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> I've just two, done an hour. Two people run a marathon and there's a dead heat. You don't say, okay, one more mile. <laughs> oh, it, there, there is one guy who keeps chanting it and he chants it for ages. And towards the end, it's just how like disappointed he seems. He's like, five more minutes. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to win this argument, am I? It was interesting how they chose to end it as well. That Punk hands him the belt and he kind of slumps into the corner. And Joe holds the belt above him. Yeah. And it's like, I'm still the champ, and you know I would have won if the match had gone on 10 seconds more. Yeah. But you get to hold some sort of victory over me. And that was and, what, you know, Punk does say, you know. And also the frustration of this guy's drawn against me he's twice. He's the guy that I can't beat, and I'm supposed to be the, the invulnerable. You know, he was being built so well at this time as an it was this this ring of honor title reign was what made joe a big deal in wrestling yeah. and then months later he's in tna well they often um, point out you know basically because of this title reign is why joe is still to this day a prominent figure and has yeah. now been able to wrestle brock lesnar and main event pay-per-views in the wwe um well, they- they talk about how Mick Foley's in the crowd, yeah. and um, Mick Foley for years was badgering WWE to sign Well, tonight. around this time, he was pushing really hard for both Joe and Punk to be brought into the WWE, and I think it's probably for the best that they didn't go at that point, because they would have been swallowed whole. Punk yeah. had the good fortune of being around, being able to debut in ECW with Paul Heyman in charge, so he had a certain amount of control over him, which he did lose eventually, but he was able to, you know... he. he Again, Punk... He was incubated. Say, yeah, Punk... Again, this is going to... Can I just make clear? I'm a huge fan of CM Punk. But I'm not someone that's going to hero worship. And I can see faults within logic and all that sort of stuff. Punk, I think, will always feel like the entire world's against him. But he's had good fortune to get where he is. That's not to say he doesn't deserve to be where he is. But everyone always has good fortune on their side. He came up at a time when there's a vacuum in wrestling. You know, WCW doesn't exist. ECW doesn't exist. Punk would have probably made it in ECW. Yeah. He would have probably, Paul Heyman would have looked at him and put him up against Sandman and Tommy Dreamer. And, you know, if he ever brought him back, Raven, Rob Van Dam. And he would have probably excelled in that situation. But maybe he would have only been like a Steve Carino, you know? But because there's this vacuum and there's this Ring of Honor thing and it needs something new and it needs something exciting, CM Punk's there to go in there. There's no veterans on the indie scene that are smothering the scene, so he's allowed to be indulged in little IWA Mid-South, and he's allowed to do a 90-minute match, and he's allowed to do a 60-minute match. He comes into the WWE, and he's there at the point when suddenly they have to go for people that don't have any kind of drug issues. (laughs) And you know you're safe with the straight-edge guy. Yeah. You know? That's a banker. That's safe. That's yours. let's, Let's save all this discussion for later on. Again, and because so people are going to think, I think I will get some dislike for this for some of my criticisms. And I'm not someone that likes to criticize a lot of wrestlers, but I just and it's not so much punk; it's just the culture, the cult around him. And there is a cult around punk. Yeah, absolutely is. And I was like, you know, I was a robot at this point, an ROH bot, a guy that saw Ring of Honor as the best in it ever, and it was what wrestling should be, you know. And WWE, I just lost all interest in WWE whatsoever. And it's never, ever gone... Like, I've always had an emotional detachment from WWE from about 2002. 
And I've always been a bit baffled by people who get so angry about it to this day. But, um, again, we'll, we'll talk about that in a later Ring of Honor, ma- uh, Ring of Honor match. Because uh, there are some more that get five stars. Yeah. Uh, what I do want to say, just because, and, and we probably, again, we will probably talk about it when we talk about CM Punk again, but the fact it has come up so much um, in this episode is, obviously CM Punk did back himself to take up the offer that the UFC laid down. Uh, and that either shows, like, confidence or... Hubris. Over hubris, uh, which is a form of confidence, but it's overconfidence. Mm. However, on the flip side, if that's the kind of money you get to um, indulge that, oh, I've always quite fancied doing that, and you were given that UFC levels of money to do it, you probably would do it. Oh yeah, I, I'm going to say straight away uh, for whatever criticisms I had of CM Punk thinking that he could handle it in the UFC. Uh, I will say that if the UFC hadn't offered him a contract, he would have gone and had an MMA fight elsewhere. Yeah, he would have had. And an you know what? MMA fight. He would have gone to Bellator or Strike yeah. Force or somewhere else or whatever. And he he had the balls to find out. Yeah. Like. Yeah, but I know I'm not going to win a UFC fight, so yeah. I'm not going to do that because I have a level of self awareness. Yes, however, we have all we'll, we'll seen... We'll talk about it, that another time. Yeah. Let's talk about that I, I will. I will just box it off with this. We have all seen that guy in the pub that says, oh, I could do that. Yeah, he but, went and found out if he yeah, could. Yeah, but CM and Punk he was sober. Yeah. <laughs> and he makes a big point about that as well. Anyway, let's uh, go into the key thing, and that's why I want to make sure that people think I'm not being overly negative, because I am giving this match five stars. It is a self-indulgence, but sometimes... Like, Alejandro Gonzalez in Yurito is an extremely self-indulgent director. Extremely self-indulgent. So is David Lynch. So was Stanley Kubrick. <sighs> Finally some names I recognise. <laughs> uh, so is Quentin Tarantino. But sometimes they make great works of art. Yeah. And this was a great work of art. I I'm am giving it five stars. I'm joining it with that. I am also giving this five stars because it was ex- it, it executed what it wanted to be brilliantly. It told its story well. Yeah, and you know what? It made he- headlocks were interesting in this match compared to what they usually are. And like I said, I, the subtext of this match is look at how well we're telling this story. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I do. But at the end of the day, they are telling it well. So fair play to them. Yeah. If they hadn't, you know... And I think CM Punk could have had himself a a WrestleMania 25 Triple H Randy Orton match. I think that was in him. Maybe that was what the UFC was, you know? Yeah. Um, But this time, he backed up everything that he thought he was. He thought he could have done this in 1999. And he couldn't have. It's like he said, he very rarely got humbled. Like, one of the few times he got humbled was when he was in the ring with Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. And Raven said... He was able... CM Punk eventually became the guy that he always thought he was. And this was maybe the first time that he... One of the first times that he truly showed that... Was on the path. Just as a personality. Because this is another thing I will say about CM Punk. And you can't say this about everyone. If you would have dropped him in any era of wrestling, any period of time, he would have become a star. He would have been huge in the territory days. Going Mm. from territory to territory getting nuclear heat from a crowd. He would have been a Roddy Piper or a Dusty Rhodes or a Dick Murdoch or, you know, 
any any of those sort of things. He would have done all of that. I don't know how his straight edge culture would have worked within that time. <laughs> but it's the same. John Moxley slash Dean Ambrose would have always been a star. Yeah. Misawa would have always been a star. Kabashi oh, would have God, always yeah. been a star. Yeah. Kawada would have always been a star. Um, Ric Flair would have always been a star. Hulk Hogan would have always been a star. Roddy Piper, Randy Savage, you know, Shawn Michaels. Some Sting? wouldn't have. You couldn't put Dory Funk Jr. in every era of wrestling yeah. and he would have become a star. I don't know if you could have put Sting in every era of wrestling and he would have become a star. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could put The Undertaker in every era of wrestling. As crazy as it sounds, but Dave Meltzer basically said it on Twitter recently. You couldn't put Andre the Giant in this era of wrestling and he'd become as big a star as he was back then. WWE oh, no. wouldn't have allowed it. Yeah, because, well, and Giants do more now than he could yeah. have done. Well, no, one day we're going to watch some 1970s Andre the Giant in New Japan and your jaw might hit the floor. So, you know, don't always count that out. But True. You know, um, yeah. So this is a five-star match involving two guys that would have probably become stars in any kind of era of wrestling, and they're all fantastic, and they were both only in their mid-twenties at this point, which is even more amazing. And they were in a culture that did not know what a 60-minute wrestling match kind of looked like, and Mm. we showed them. I don't know if I might say... I kind of half want to save this for a later episode, but I do have a really good Samoa Samoa Joe um, anecdote, actually. I I might tease it. Okay. We'll, we'll remember that for a later time because this is Simon. Our next episode is Samoa Joe again, and he's in new territory. He's in TNA. It is the sole TNA match to ever get five stars from WWE, from Dave Meltzer. It's a bit harsh on Test and Albert, I feel. Yes, and it is also the. Uh, you can keep laughing if you like. No, I'm going to. Sorry. It. it is also the only three-way triple threat match to ever get five stars from Dave Meltzer. So arguably this is the greatest three-way outside of what Simon watches on uh, when he goes... You're talking about your playlist again, Lord. There's a lot of jazz involved here. <laughs> Rhymes Scat- jazz. <laughs> uh, it is Samoa Joe against AJ Styles against Christopher Daniels for Christopher Daniels X Division Championship and it was the main event of I don't even know what the event was called but Unbreakable Unbreakable so that's something to look forward to this might be like somewhere that you have a bit more knowledge than I because you were a I don't know if this time you were a TNA fan but no my TNA watching came a bit later than this but I, I know a little bit about this time period it's seen as the, if you have to watch one TNA match, it, it's either the reverse Battle Royal or this one. <laughs> For very different reasons. <laughs> but anyway, until then, boy have we spoken a lot about certain things. And I've set myself up for a fall, if anyone cares. And if people want to get in touch with me and tell me how much they care... I'll I'll be I'll be available. It's Lorcan Mullen, L O R C A N M U W L A for alternative, N for new wave, at gmail.com. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, um, Facebook, Letterboxd, all those things. Follow me, get in touch with me, tell me why I'm a dickhead. <laughs> Simon, if people want to get in touch with you and tell you why I'm a dickhead, how can they do so? 
Uh, they can do so on Twitter, where I'm turning on the Simon Cross free. Uh, free, because if he times that by 10, that's about the minutes of, of this match that contained a headlock. <laughs> Very good. You can get in touch with the show at lntyspod at gmail.com. Tell us how we're both dickheads. But until <laughs> our next episode, there's nothing left for us to say except my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time every 60-minute hour of the day. Until the next time. Well, you can find him at a Starbucks writing a script. He got a wax mustache and suspenders on his hip. He got them $5 shoes and a brand new MacBook. $20 hair gel. Fresh out of the bed book. DJ dive bar, old bike, no car. Judge you while you drinking if it isn't PBR. He tells the girls that he's political. Just comes off egotistical. Three watches on his wrist, man. They all digital. Soy milk, soybeans, all soy, everything. You want to talk indie, man? He can tell you anything. Pitchfork Media, he's encyclopedia. A careful calculation, definition of bohemian. Members only jacket doesn't matter what the weather doesn't care how good the movie is the book is always better cuz he don't try so far still the neighbors Wi-Fi the record's never good enough he only like the old stuff there goes that old G suburban drifter yeah. professional drifter for